0: John chapter 20, verse 11 through to verse 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, One at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom? are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let us ask God to bless his word. Read and preached, let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your words. These words are moving, they are true, and they, in many ways, are the lifeblood of our faith. The truths contained herein that we have read, we ask, would be truths we believe. with the greatest faith that we are capable of believing, this side of glory, we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, the context of Mary at the tomb goes back, as we read earlier, to a time when at some point in her life, and we don't know when, but we are told that she was possessed by seven demons, and we really have very little idea of what that would have looked like in the first century context, how these demons would have manifested themselves in her life, what led to the demons possessing her in the first place, what type of uh, spiritual practices, what type of moral failings perhaps, and so on and so forth, got Mary to the point in her life, in all of world's history, where she was possessed by seven demons. And yet we are told that through the course of his ministry, our Lord would simply speak and the demons would obey. And at some point in Mary's life, she is confronted with the Savior Jesus Christ, and he spoke and freed her from being possessed by seven Demon, seven spiritual beings that had taken up residence in her body and soul to the point that nothing but the words of Christ could set her free. And that would obviously be a foreshadowing of a greater speech in a certain sense to Mary one day in her life. But this is the Mary that we are speaking about. This is the Mary that was described in the reading just at the tomb. And she has come back to the tomb, and she is lingering. And we have to understand that there's probably a few things going on here. On the one hand, the text makes it clear that she's concerned about the body of Christ. She's concerned about where he has been taken, who has stolen him, and so on and so forth. But I can't help but shake the feeling that there is a sense in which her lingering at the tomb is because of a deeper principle of faith, hope, and love that resides in her soul concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. She would not understand everything that she would understand moments later at this point, but there is something keeping her at the tomb. Remember, John and Peter have left. They've gone back to their house, perhaps, they are not waiting at the tomb, they are not uh, in a certain sense saying, well, the only explanation now can be that he's been raised from the dead, they've left, but she remains at the tomb. Her love is so profound and compelling that she must lay her eyes upon Jesus or she will not rest. But she's not only waiting at the tomb, she's weeping in a sense she's wailing. She's so overcome with grief that it is obvious as you look upon her that if you were to see her, the first question you would ask is, why are you weeping? Notice the text doesn't leave us in any doubt about the fact that Mary is wailing. In verse 11, twice Mary stood weeping. And as she wept, John wants us to understand a few points here. And one of those is that Mary is overcome with grief. If you just move down to the angels speaking to her in verse 13, they ask her, why are you weeping? Then if you get to verse 15, Jesus asks the very same question. She wept is at the tomb. She is waiting. She wants to see Jesus, and she will not rest until she sees Jesus. There's that story, I'm sure many of you know about it, of Hashiko, the uh, Japanese dog, and uh, it's, it's quite a moving story. And the reason I know that is because I only watched the preview to the movie uh, on YouTube and said, there's no way I'm watching this movie. I am not crying in front of my kids or my wife or anyone else for that matter. And the uh, one minute preview was just enough to set me off. <laughs> oh, you laugh, but you, you, you go and watch the movie and come with your brave laughter to me. Uh, we'll see what becomes of you all. But this dog, after his master died, would go and wait at the same place where he would always meet his his owner after coming back from work each day, and I, I think it was several years that the dog would go and wait, go and wait, go and wait there's actually a statue of the dog in Japan, and people go and have their photos taken with this statue, uh, and a testimony of the loyalty and the love of this dog to its master and Here is Mary having this love, this loyalty, this perhaps faint hope that she can't quite give uh, verbal reasoning to, and can only wail concerning where is her Lord. And Gerhardus Voss has a sermon on this text called Rabboni, and I would highly suggest to you that you never read Gerhardus Voss. He's Uh, One who is a Dutch Reformed theologian who lived in the United States, whose prose is impenetrable and will leave you scratching your head and wondering, do you understand anything about anything? Do not read him. But you can read the sermon, Rabboni, because it's one of the, I think, very best sermons written in the English language on uh, this text especially, but on any text, and he makes the point that she, out of her love, sought a lifeless body, but love gave her something better. In fact, he adds once we receive the intimate bond of faith in Christ, once we received this gift of faith from above in our Lord Jesus Christ, there can be no death to that relationship. Yes, she was there at the tomb waiting, seeking the lifeless body. But there was something, a deeper instinct, I believe, whereby her faith, her hope and her love meant she had to be there. That sort of hope that she couldn't quite articulate, that faith that propelled her to think, where is he? And so she grieves and she wails and she looks into the tomb. And as she saw in the tomb, she was confronted with two angels in white. And there's that passage in Hebrews chapter 1 at the end of the chapter, verse 14, where we're told, Are not angels ministering spirits sent to those who will inherit salvation? Here are those angels ministering spirits who have been sent from above to minister to people like Mary as one who has inherited salvation. And they are dressed in white. And you may ask yourself the question, why are we told they are dressed in white? And actually if you read John and you read Revelation written by John and you read the rest of the Scriptures, you find that white is not only a symbol of purity, though it is that, it is much more fundamentally in the New Covenant a symbol of victory. Here are angels and they are dressed not so much for purity, but they are dressed for victory. And they are waiting in the tomb, sitting at either end of where Jesus was laid. And they ask her a question, Why are you weeping? Now you could say they are genuinely interested they're curious there's a woman looking in and they're going well why are you weeping what could be going wrong in your life but let's be honest if they have been sent from above and they are aware as they no doubt are of the resurrection perhaps they're asking the question in a slightly different way not so much as though they are curious as to why she's weeping but a sort of question as there is no need for you to be weeping. Why are you weeping? You do not need to be weeping. They know Jesus has been raised from the dead. They know that they've been sent to Mary to minister to her. They're not asking, why are you weeping? As though they don't know. They are basically saying there is no need to be weeping. Now she doesn't know that, of course, at the time. And so she responds, they have taken away My Lord. Remember, the issue has already been raised where she goes to Peter and to John and she says almost the exact same thing, except for one word. She says, They have taken away the Lord. But here to the angels, it becomes so intensely personal. They have taken away my Lord, my Savior. They've taken away my Lord. Now, as she says that, she turns around. And you have to wonder, when you're in the midst of a conversation where you're so consumed by the body of Christ, who has been taken away from the tomb, and there happened to be two men sitting there in their angelic glory dressed in white, and the other gospel writers tell us about the way in which these these clothes shined majestically with, with the type of glory that you see shining in the clothes of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. Why would she turn around? Anyone who's deeply interested in a certain question that's consuming her wouldn't turn around, and For some reason, she decides she's going to turn around. And I I think that's important. You you read the text and there's no reason why she should turn around, but she does. And again, here is where you see the providence of God, the superintending care of God in all the various details of our life. For some reason, she decides to turn around. Around and who does she see? She sees Jesus, though she doesn't understand him to be Jesus, standing. And she did not know. She did not know that the man standing behind her was her Lord. She did not know that was the man who had cured her from demon possession. She did not know it was her Savior. She saw but she did not see. And that is a powerful motive in Scripture. Now, Voss makes this point, because as you know, the first person to see the risen Lord in all of world history, of all of the people that you could decide to see, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the way the Roman Catholics go on about the perpetual virgin and the immaculate mother of our God you would think she'd be the one given this honor but it was actually a demon-possessed woman who had loved Christ and so Voss says the first appearance of the risen Lord was given to Mary Magdalene for no other reason and I know I'd said his prose was impenetrable and it is but here he's perspicuous The first appearance of the risen Lord was given to Mary for no other reason than that she needed Him first and needed Him most. And that's lovely. There was something about her love towards Christ that was so special, so intimate, so powerful that she was given the peculiar dignity of being the one to first see the risen Lord of glory and so he speaks to her and there's compassion here as there should be you know let's say you're at home and your husband or your wife or your child comes through the doors and they're wailing and and they walk in and you say oh um could you make sure to take out the garbage it would be cruel wouldn't it When someone's grieving, when someone's wailing, the natural response is to say, what is wrong? And so, he doesn't just get into revealing who he is. He asks her, why are you weeping? But he adds a question. Whom are you seeking? And it's not immediately obvious. Sometimes people can be weeping, but they're not seeking anyone. They're weeping because of a variety of reasons. But he's drawing out from Mary something will that enable him to reveal himself to her. Whom are you seeking? It's interesting, after Adam sins, the first words that come from God to Adam are a question. Adam, where are you? And the first words that come from the Son of God after he's been raised from the dead is a question. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And notice her response. Now, my friends, you have to understand... This is true. This is real life events that happened. And the reason we know this is not only because our faith assures us of that by the power of the Spirit that tells us these are the words of God, but that nobody would ever write it this way unless it happened this way. In the first century, you don't have a woman who had seven demons be the first person to see the risen Lord. And you certainly, if you were a Hollywood director, you certainly wouldn't have it play out like this, which is so ordinary, walking, oh, I'm going to look into the tomb, there's two men sitting there, have a conversation, then turn around, think it's the gardener, and have him ask you a question, and it's all just so ordinary. I mean, come on. If I was writing and making this up, I would have had, because I'm very vindictive when I'm mad at people, I would have had all the people that were mean to Jesus there. I would have had all the Roman soldiers there. I would have made sure thousands were there. And I said, come to the tomb on the first day of the week. And then the stone would have rolled and lights would have come blasting out of the tomb. And Jesus would have walked out in regal glory. And He would have shook His fist at them. And they would have all fallen down. And it would be, oh, be wonderful, wouldn't it? But you see... This is actually what happened. She supposes him to be the gardener. I mean, the resurrected Lord of glory is mistaken at first for a gardener. And says to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. You have to just think about how crazy this is in a certain sense. Imagine being so overwhelmed with grief, and you've just seen two men dressed in robes where their robes are shining with angelic glory, and then you turn around and you suppose someone to be a gardener, and you just say to him, Well, listen, if you've taken him away, tell me where he is, and I'll, you know, go and put him to rest, like as if that actually could have happened that someone would have gone through all of the trouble to steal a body and then said oh yeah I, you know i put him over there and you know go take care of him she doesn't know what she's talking about no she's completely overwhelmed right now that she, there's no sense to her and she can't even recognize him but then something remarkable happens in verse 16 Jesus doesn't need to explain himself in any way, shape, or form. He doesn't get into theology in the sense that we might think. It's actually quite remarkable how he reveals himself to her. Because again, if I'm writing this, or if you're writing this, you go into an extended discourse, listen, did you not know this and that and the other? But it doesn't end that way. I tried this this week on my children when we were going through the text and we had family worship. I said, is there somebody who says your name and you just know that that person is that person by the way they say your name? And immediately my boys all resonated with that. They knew there were certain people in their life that their name is said in a certain way and they just know who it is. They don't even have to see. They just have to hear. My one son said, Yeah, you know, he listed this teacher. Because teachers are so weird. They always talk a certain way to students and they have a way in which they say the name. Even my dad used to say there's this one teacher that would just always say him, Jones you know, just like that. He just knew who the teacher was. He's walking down the hallway and Jones turns around he knows who it is. It's the old British style. Last name. Matthew's soccer coach, he just knows, he doesn't even need to see him. Maddie, Maddie, he always calls him Maddie, just the way he says the name, and it becomes entrenched in the way in which you hear something. I often, Barb's not even around, sometimes I'll even hear Mark, and it's Barb saying Mark, but she's nowhere around, and I'm like, what's going on? Have you ever had your spouse's voice in your head? It's terrifying. I said this when she was listening don't worry this isn't behind her back well it is behind her back but it's the second time now the point I'm trying to say is that there was no doubt in my mind that it's not the name so much as the manner in which he said the name that the scales fell off her eyes and it could be no one else other than Jesus in the way that he said her name he would have said her name through the course of his time with her on earth, that when he said the name here, that was it, that was all she needed. She did not need, I am Jesus of Nazareth. She did not need anything else but a simple word, Mary. And that is met with her own response of a simple word that Jesus would have known that it was Mary Magdalene, even if he wasn't looking at her by the way in which she said to him, Rabboni. Because this untranslatable word in a certain sense almost probably took on a proper name for Jesus in the way in which He was addressed by her. I have no doubt that she always probably called Him Rabboni. Rabboni. My teacher. My Lord. My teacher. And what does she do? She does what you would expect her to do. You have, you have, for those of you who don't have children, you can tune out right now, but for those of you who have had children and have lost them at some point in your life, and we mostly go through that as parents, they go away, they go missing, you're in a store, you're at an amusement park, you lose your child, and you start to panic, and your heart races, and then you finally find them. You, in most cases, you finally find them, right? And what is the... The way in which you grab them and you hug them, and then you are so careful to not let them out of your sight again because you don't want to go through that experience of losing your child. So it only makes sense that Mary has lost Christ once. She was at the cross, she was one of the last to leave the cross. She saw the blood, she saw the tears. She heard the cries to heaven. She saw the darkness. She witnessed the pulling of the beard. She heard the mockery. She saw it all. And she saw him die and say, It is finished. And now she sees him alive and she is not going to let go of him. She is not going to lose him again. And that explains why Jesus says those words. Do not cling to me. Do not cling to me in the sense that you're never going to let me go. Do not cling to me because I have yet work to do. I have not yet ascended to the Father. Remember what Christ said to his disciples in the upper room? It is for your good that I go away. If I do not go away, the Spirit will not come. The Comforter will not come. And so Christ must go away so that he can send the Spirit in his name so that we can all cling to Jesus and not just Mary. Jesus is saying to Mary, I am not yours alone to cling to, but I am for everyone who will cling to me from now on by faith. What must you do, Mary? And it's amazing the obedience she shows after he commands her. Go to my brothers. Here again, just pause for a moment. Where were they at the cross? Mary was at the cross. You can see why He's being kind to her. But where were they at the cross? Except for John. Where were they? Where was their faith? Where was their love? Where was their devotion? Where was their courage? Where was any of those things it was nowhere to be found because they had left. They had gone into hiding. They were fearful. And yet, he says, after his resurrection, go not to my enemies, not go to the faithless, go to the cowards. He says, go to my brothers and say to them. Say to them that they are going to bear the same relationship to God that I do. I am ascending to my Father and your Father. My God and your God. And that's really quite remarkable. So what does Mary do? Mary who had moments earlier been clinging to him for dear life. Is now going. And she is announcing. And again you, you have to understand how truly remarkable this is. If you are starting a religion in the first century and it's a sham of a religion and you're like you know what we have big hopes for our religion we want worldwide faith among all the nations and matthew takes care of that in matthew chapter 28 go into all the nations so we've got big claims now how are we going to get all nations to believe i know what this is a good idea we will take a woman's testimony though she's not allowed to give testimony in court in the first century will have a woman go and announce that this has happened you don't write it this way unless it's true and so she goes to the disciples and imagine what it must have been like to these fearful men who were confused perplexed i have seen the lord And these are not just words, I've seen the dead, lifeless body, and now we can put him back in the tomb. I have seen the Lord who spoke to me. See, that's the difference. I have seen the Lord. Do you think she didn't explain to them that he's alive? That he said to her, Mary? And that he has commanded her to go and say that he is ascending to his God and their God, to his father and their father? I have seen the Lord. And you see, that is... What every true Christian must be able to say. Job in chapter 42 goes through everything in the first 41 chapters and he gets to chapter 42. And finally, Job is able to say to God, What? I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Mary has seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. And that's the supernatural desire of the faith that God gives you. You want to see the Lord. You want to cling to the Lord. And you can cling to the Lord. And you can see the Lord. By faith you see the Lord now. By sight you will see Him when He returns. But until then you must cling to Him. Though Mary couldn't cling to Him then because He had to ascend, you must cling to Him now. And that's the essence of the Christian faith. You're clinging to the One who is victorious. You're clinging to the Savior. You're clinging to the One who is alone able to save you from your sins. I didn't plan to raise the wonderful victory of the South African rugby team yesterday in the World Cup final. And I don't know if I'll have a tenant after yesterday because she's a nice young lady and has a young child and she probably thinks an absolute psychopath is living above her after yesterday. And she wouldn't be wrong, of course. But uh, you see... South Africa is not very good at many things anymore, Uh, but we've still got rugby, and occasionally cricket, and red wine. There we go. And they win the World Cup, and they win the quarterfinal by one point, the semifinal by one point, and the final by one point. That's unbelievable. It, It will never be replicated, I don't think, ever. But something absolutely disturbing happened. And my dad alerted this to me because I had to rush off. I missed my son's soccer game because it means nothing compared to South Africa playing. And uh, so my dad alerted me to uh, Cyril Ramaphosa. And you see, what happened is Sia Khaleesi, the captain, he's the black captain of the South African rugby team, which is a remarkable thing when you look at South Africa's history. And now a, a black rugby player, where it used to be white guys play rugby, black people, they play soccer in South Africa, in the old apartheid, now everything's come together, it's wonderful, black captain lifts the trophy, and then after the captain lifts the trophy, historically in any major sporting event, the players then get a chance to lift the trophy, but yesterday, Cyril Ramaphosa, the president is there, and he's the next guy to get the trophy. And this big smile on his face, and he's lifting the trophy like this. And I was like, This is outrageous. You weren't on the field with your sweat and your blood and your tears. You didn't run five meters. And you have the effrontery, as a politician would, to get onto the stage and take the trophy right from the captain's hand and lift it up and say, Ah, yes. And it struck me very powerfully. That is basically us. That is us at the tomb. The empty tomb. We didn't go into that grave with perfect sinless obedience. We didn't die on the cross. We didn't give our lives. We didn't give our blood. We didn't give our sweat. We didn't give our tears. We did absolutely nothing except send Him there. And then we have the effrontery to come to the tomb like Mary and lift the trophy above our heads having done absolutely nothing with a massive smile on our face claiming the victory. That's the Christian faith. It's an absolute scandal. It's an outrage that you should all be a bunch of Cyril Ramaphosa's lifting that trophy with a big smile on your face Because someone else won the victory. And yet, that is the Christian faith. And that's what you must do. In the way that that politician was clinging to that trophy, you have to go to Christ and cling to Him each day of your life, lifting that trophy, claiming the victory that you did absolutely nothing to secure except receive it. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we thank You that the victory is not just Christ's, but ours. And yet, O Lord, what a wonder that we should share in a victory that we did absolutely nothing to achieve. We thank you for the resurrection, not just for Mary being able to cling to him and confess Rabboni, but one in which we can all likewise do the same. We pray that we will remember what it is to cling to Christ each day of our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen.